0: Preachers are fond of saying a good many things, but one of those is that there are only two types of people in the world, the saved and the lost, the believers and the unbelievers. And this is true. The world is indeed divided into two distinct groups without without any degree of overlap between the two. In other words, you are at this very moment, sitting here in this very sanctuary, either the child of God or the child of the devil. You are either at this very moment alive in Christ or you are dead in trespasses and sins. Contrary to the opinion of Miracle Max from the Princess Bride. No one is mostly dead, nor are they slightly alive. In terms of the whole of humanity, there is only life or death, faith or unbelief, mercy or judgment, the love of God or the wrath of God. But what about when we're not dealing With the world at large. What about when we're speaking of the visible church. The gathered church here on a Sunday morning. At 10.15 a.m. in Nixon, Missouri. What about when we're dealing with the church where everyone professes faith. Where everyone is baptized. Where everyone claims to belong to Jesus. See, the author of Hebrews is not concerned with addressing the world. The book of Hebrews is not an an evangelistic, apologetic defense of the Christian faith written to convince unbelievers of the truth of Christ. That's not its purpose. It was written for the baptized. For the covenant people of God living in community with one another in in the wilderness of this world, somewhere between Egypt and the promised land. Therefore, the author has used a different set of categories into which he divides his congregation, his audience. And these two divisions are clearly seen in the last few verses of Hebrews chapter 10. I invite you to look with me at verse 37. Where he quotes from Habakkuk 2, verses 3 and 4, and he says... For yet in a very little while he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Do you see the two groups? According to the author of Hebrews, within the visible gathered church, there are on the one hand those who are righteous, who live by faith, who persevere to the end, who will be saved at the coming of Christ on the last day, those in whom God takes pleasure. And on the other hand, there are those who shrink back in times of tribulation and distress and affliction. Those who will not be found faithful at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those in whom God takes no pleasure and they shrink back to destruction. The author is writing to a congregation of people whose faith is faltering. Whose strength is fading. Whose allegiance to Christ is wavering. And he has written to them to convince them of the supremacy and the sufficiency of Of Jesus Christ. He has written to convince them that Jesus is the better priest. Of the better covenant. Who has offered the better sacrifice for the sins of his people. And that only the righteous who live by faith. Persevering in that faith in Jesus. The better priest of the better covenant. With the better sacrifice. Only those who live by faith and persevere by faith. Will be saved on the last day. So it raises a question. The righteous shall live by faith. What does it mean to live by faith? What is faith? What does it mean to persevere in faith unto the day of salvation? And this is such a massively important question for us to answer. Especially in a day and in a culture in which... We live where everyone, nearly everyone in Nixon, Missouri, claims to be a Christian, checks the box Christian off on the census form. Nearly everyone claims to have faith, and yet almost no one has a life that even remotely resembles the life of faith described by the authors of Scripture. Seems to me like we've got a a problem with the definition of faith. Of what it means to have faith, of what it means to live by faith. Because those who have faith, those who live by faith, those who persevere in faith, they have a life that is marked by joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, righteousness, faithfulness, self control. They bear fruit. And yet we look at most of the people in the world and in the culture and in the community around us and we see no fruit. They do not gather with the people of Christ to worship. Their lives are not submitted to the authority of the word. They do not bear the fruit of the spirit. In short, they claim to have faith, but the tree is known by its fruit and judging by the fruit of their lives. They appear to be dead. And I think the problem lies with the fact that for so many, faith refers to a moment-in-time decision to ask Jesus into your heart. Faith is a past tense action. Like raising your hand that one time at that youth event walking the aisle that one time at at the revival service. It was something that happened way back there that may or may not have any ongoing relevance and application to my life now. Or maybe they have a view of faith that views faith as Some sort of distant intellectual assent to certain claims about Jesus. Do you believe that Jesus is the son of God? Yes. Do you believe that he died upon the cross? Yes. Do you believe that he was raised again from the dead? I guess. You must have faith. No. The problem is is that so many people are operating with a definition of faith that views it as a static and motionless thing. That may or may not have any ongoing effect upon my life. But listen to me, beloved. Listen to me now and over the next six weeks in Hebrews 11. That is not biblical faith. And it is not what the author of Hebrews is calling forth from this congregation to whom he writes. And it is not what the Holy Spirit is calling forth from us. True faith is a dynamic thing. It is living, it is active, it is life-altering and destiny-changing. It is molding our affections and bending them towards Christ. And that's the point of Hebrews 11. The righteous are those who live by faith. Their life, in other words, is determined and defined by their trust in the person and the character of God. What does such a life look like? What what does it look like to live a life defined and driven and dominated by a dynamic trust in the living God who makes promises that he keeps? That's what I want to know. Why? Because as we learned last week and as our eyes just look up a little bit from from Hebrews 11.1 to Hebrews 10... Only those who live by faith will be saved in the day of judgment. And I want to be saved. Only those who live by faith receive the promise. And I want to inherit the promise. Only those who live by faith bring pleasure to the heart of God. And can you imagine anything more eternally satisfying to the soul of man than to bring pleasure to the heart of his creator? To have God look upon my life and smile. So I want to know what faith is because I want it. God wants to be trusted, beloved. He wants to be believed. When God says to us, as he does, your your greatest joy... And your deepest satisfactions and your most lasting treasures are found only in me. Like he does, for instance, in Psalm 1611 when he says, Through the psalmist you will make known to me the path of life In your presence, there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. God is glorified when we take him at his word and believe what he says and render our lives accordingly, as if he indeed is our greatest joy and delight and treasure. That is faith to believe God and to structure your life accordingly. That is faith and without that kind of faith, verse 6, it is impossible to please God. And so we arrive at Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 is a museum of faith. Its corridors are filled with the portraits of men and women who lived by that kind of faith. Men and women who endured tribulation and affliction and persecution, they were sawed in half alive and they trusted in God because they were convinced that what was found in him and in his promise to them far surpassed anything that could be found in this present and passing world. They believed God would be faithful to his promise when all evidence appeared to point in the other direction. There are five halls in this museum of faith that we will be traveling through over the next six weeks. Each hall containing portraits of faith from a different redemptive historical period. And I want to lay out, I just want to give you a little tour guide, a little map, okay, in your hand or on the back of your bulletin that will help you know where these five halls are and what we're going to find as we walk our way through them. The first hall is called the antediluvian hall. Well, you know what? That's a big word. And you know what? That's okay. It's okay to learn big words. As a pastor, I sort of, I sort of see myself as a watchman on the wall like the last bastion of the English language. And we ought not give up words like antediluvian. It simply means this. Anti means pre- Deluvian, deluge, flood, pre-flood. So the, the era or the epic of redemptive history before the flood is known as the antediluvian era. It's a good word. And it'll help you win trivial pursuit. I heard an amen in there. The antediluvian hall contains the portraits of three men. Abel, Enoch, and Noah. Three men who lived by faith from the creation of the world to the time of the flood. The second hall is the patriarchal hall, the hall of the patriarchs. And it presents the lives of Abraham and Sarah, of Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. Men and women of old who trusted God when all they had was a word of promise. And a lot of years under their belt. The third hall, the Mosaic Hall, concerns the days of Moses. who, Verse 25 reminds us, chose rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Why? Because he considered Christ to be of greater reward than all of the treasures of Egypt. I'd rather have Jesus and I'd rather be counted a part of the people of God than to be in the king's court in Egypt. The fourth hall is the Israelite Hall. And it provides these very small sketches of faith from the history of Israel, from the time of the conquest of Canaan down through the days of the prophets. And then there's the fifth hall, the very interior, the heart of the Museum of Faith, in which resides the prize of the entire gallery, gallery, the Mona Lisa of Faith, if you will. It's the portrait of Jesus upon the cross. It's going to be a great day about six weeks from now when we stand before this great and massive portrait at the beginning of Hebrews chapter 12, and we fix our eyes on it. Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the what? The joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. And we're going to consider him who endured such hostility against himself that we might not grow weary and lose heart. So over the next several weeks, we're going to be strolling down through this corridor of the Museum of Faith, considering each portrait, pausing before it, some longer, some shorter, and asking the question, what does this portrait teach me about what it means to live by faith? Because the righteous are those who live by faith. So before we enter into the first hall of this, this museum to begin the tour, we're going to pause in the foyer, and the author of Hebrews, who's going to act as our tour guide, is going to give us a definition of faith, a brief introduction to the unifying theme that ties every hall and every portrait together. In other words, we need to define what faith is before we can really see how each portrait is an illustration of faith. And an illustration of what it means to live by faith. So we read in the foyer, verses 1 through 2, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Many of you will probably be familiar with the older King James version, which says that faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Those two words in the New American Standard, assurance and conviction, in the King James substance and evidence, they're two very difficult words to translate. The question is, are they to be understood subjectively, as in, Assurance and conviction. That's how my Bible takes it's something that is, that it. Something that can't be touched and can't be felt and is, is sort of residing up in my mind. Or are they to be understood objectively? That's substance or evidence, as in the King James Version. Or, or to state it another way, are we to understand faith as an intangible idea that resides in my own mind like assurance or conviction or is faith something more than that is it something substantial something i can see and taste and feel not with my eyes and my tongue and my my physical hands but with the eyes and the tongue and the hands of faith. Something, something that reaches into the future and reaches towards the promise and lays hold of it so strongly that it brings that promise into the present reality and it becomes the defining characteristic of my life. Is that what we're talking about? I think so. I think the King James got it right. I think faith is the substance of things hoped for, and the evidence of things not seen. Philip Hughes writes that, quote, faith lays hold of something promised and therefore hoped for, and it lays hold of it with the hand of faith as something solid and real, though yet unseen. So what is the author saying here in verse 1? He is saying that faith lays hold of the promise of God, the promise of some future grace and future blessing, some future reward that is hoped for but is not yet seen in this life and, and with my visible physical eyes, but something which I know will one day be mine. Faith is stronger than merely being assured or convinced that what I hope for will one day be belong to me faith so lays hold of the promise the hope that it brings it into the present as something real and solid and substantial and evidential that you feel as if you can almost taste its goodness and see its glory and experience its joy and some of you know what i'm talking about Faith is not merely intellectual. It's not mental assent to certain truth claims about Jesus. Faith is experiential. It is intellectual, but it's more than intellectual. It is intellectual in an experiential kind of way. Faith doesn't just know, in other words, faith tastes and sees that the Lord is good. Psalm 34, eight. I was very much helped in thinking through this definition of faith. By these words from, from John Piper. And I will read them to you. It's a lengthy quote. But it's a good one. So hang with me. Piper says. Faith apprehends the goodness and the sweetness. Of what God promises so clearly. That this goodness and sweetness are substantially present in faith. In other words faith grasps, lays hold of God's preciousness so firmly that in the faith itself, there is, a, there is the substance of the goodness and the sweetness promised. Faith doesn't create what we hope for. That would be a mere mind game. Faith is a spiritual apprehending or perceiving or tasting or sensing of the beauty and the sweetness and the preciousness and the goodness of what God promises, especially his own fellowship and the enjoyment of his own presence. Faith does not just feel confident that it is coming someday. Faith has spiritually laid hold of and perceived and tasted that it is real. And this means that faith has the substance or the nature of what is hoped for in it. Faith's enjoyment of the promise is a kind of substantial down payment of the reality which is coming. End quote. I hope, I hope that now it is clear that faith is so much more than a static and motionless decision made in the past tense. That it is so much more than a cold and distant ascent. To certain truth claims. Faith is dynamic. And it is living. And it is active. And it is experiential. And it tastes. And it sees. And it delights in unseen hope. Surely we can see now that this faith. Does not arise from within the will of man. Faith must be born in us it must be awakened in us by the holy spirit in new birth surely we can see that this kind of faith would so dominate and alter the direction of a person's life that they would never be the same such that it is absolutely absurd to say i have faith and my life exhibits no transformation. Surely we can see how this kind of faith would sustain me through trials and tribulations and persecutions and cancer and the loss of a child and the breakdown of a marriage and would cause me to persevere to the very end in hope because I'm I'm getting just a taste of it all the way along. And surely we can see how the other kind of faith The mental ascent, the past tense decision, the static and motionless kind of mere knowledge would certainly shrink back and shrivel up and wither and die when things get hot. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a... A what? Does your definition of faith have room for the word foretaste? Taste it. In worship, my soul rises up. Not all of the time, but but there are times, and those times, infrequent though they are, are so good that they keep me coming back, even when I don't want to get up on a Sunday morning. It's a foretaste. If your definition of faith doesn't have room for the word foretaste, it's not real faith. And I want us to be a people of faith. A people whose hope in God is so strong and intense. That we can taste his goodness and we can feel his pleasure. Not In the fullness that will be ours in the coming age. But like a foretaste. Like when you know how good your mother's cooking is. And you're going to go visit her and you call her on the phone and she says, Hey, I'm making your favorite meal. And what do you taste? You taste it. You don't see it. You're not ingesting it yet, but you can taste it, and it sustains you the four-hour journey to your mom's house. We need to be a people of faith, a people whose desires and affections are so bent upon the God who has pledged himself to us in Christ that everything That remains a future hope as yet unseen. Glory and joy and freedom and grace and love and forgiveness and resurrection and perfection and new heavens and new earth. They seem to us so solid and real and substantial that we're willing to endure, Hebrews 10.32, a great conflict of suffering that we may attain it. We, verse 34, accept joyfully the seizure of our property. That we may attain it. We chapter 11 and verse 25. Suffer reproach with the people of God. Rather than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. If only we may enter into it. We. Yes the people of middle American. First Baptist Nixa. Would expend our lives and risk taking love. In order that we may gain it. Don't you long for the approval of God? Don't you long for that kind of intense experiential faith? Then I would invite you, and the author of Hebrews and the Holy Spirit himself would invite you to take this tour with us. Through the Museum of Faith. Looking at each portrait. If God may be pleased to grant to us that kind of tasting and seeing such that what is unseen is more real than what is seen. We're going to look at the first two portraits in the antediluvian hall this morning. First two portraits. In this hall there are four total, running through verses 3 through 7. Four exhibits of faith from the pages of Genesis 1 through 11, from the very dawn of human history down to the time of the flood. The first exhibit is given to us in verse 3, where the author says, By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. In this first portrait, rather than focusing on an individual figure as the rest of the museum does, this opening exhibit makes a statement about all of the faithful from all peoples of all time. And I think there's a few few reasons why. Number one, our our author is going to move chronologically through redemptive history throughout Hebrews chapter 11. He's going to start at the very beginning. It's only natural for him to begin at creation. But you and I know that it would be a little odd for Adam and Eve to be the first portrait in the Museum of Faith. So what he does instead... As he draws in all of the faithful of all the ages and brings them back into this portrait of creation. The second reason is this. Faith begins with the knowledge of our creator. If, if we are to believe, as faith requires, that God can bring good out of evil, joy out of suffering, triumph out of tragedy, life out out of death, and that's going to be the recurring theme of Hebrews chapter 11, then we must first believe that he is the God who brought everything out of nothing. Faith begins with the recognition that all things find their being, their existence, their origin in God. Before everything was, God is. Before everything existed, before all that I could see existed, there was the eternal triune God who spoke creation into existence out of nothing. And it points us to that God as the God that we know and trust and love, the God to whom we belong, the God to whom we can offer our glad allegiance even in times of sorrow and tragedy and failure and death. Because he speaks a word and phew, there it is. That's the God that I want to serve when my child's just died. It's the God that I want to serve when my marriage is breaking down. That's the God that I want to serve when my, when my liver has been diagnosed with tumors. I want to serve a God who said, Let there be, and whoom, there was. That's where faith begins. Third reason I think that we might give as to why all of the faithful are given in verse 3 and not one individual figure is that how might we know that God created the heavens and the earth in six days and rested on the seventh? Were, Were you there? Was anyone there? So how can anyone know that God spoke the world into existence? They know it by revelation. They know it by the word of God. In other words, the author is establishing for us that the foundation of faith is the revealed word of God telling us what is, what has been, and what will evermore be. We receive the knowledge by revelation and we understand. it. uses the word understand. By faith we understand That the worlds were prepared by the word of God. So the purpose of this first exhibit is to show what is foundational to true and saving faith. And here's the statement. Here's here's what I would say would be in the caption beneath the portrait. Faith believes God's word. It believes God's word to be an accurate and truthful revelation of who God is and of what God has done. And it believes God's word to be powerful and living and active and creative and speaking into existence that which exists. Sharper than any double-edged sword. Faith regards God's word, believes God's word to be both true and powerful, revealing to us a creator God who brought everything out of nothing. And we can even go a little bit more. Since faith is experiential and not just intellectual, you might get that idea from the word understand. But it's more than that. It's the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. True faith, then, loves and rejoices in this God who spoke into existence a universe that is as beautiful and complex and diverse and glorious as it is. You know what faith does? Faith walks outside on an early May morning and looks at the vibrant colors of the grass and the trees and the blue sky and the white clouds that are being pushed across the horizon by the gentle wind. And it goes outside and it says, glory, God is not some communist architect that is erecting all buildings that look drab and concrete and gray and the same. He is not the God of sameness. He's the God of beauty and glory. He's a renaissance artist is what he is. He loves vibrant flowers and dazzling sunsets and powerful peals of thunder and majestic mountain peaks. And so God, or faith rather, walks out into the world and falls in love with the God who created all this. It tastes and it sees his glory through what he has made. It walks out in the night sky and it says the heavens are declaring the glory of God in the firmament, the works of his hands. What do you see when you walk outside? Because faith sees the fingerprints of God, says Piper. We move now to the second exhibit of faith from the dawn of time. And it comes from Genesis 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, He still speaks. In the second portrait, we see the two sons of Adam, Cain and Abel, two very different men with two very different professions. Cain was a farmer, Abel was a shepherd, two very different men with two very different hearts. The text of Genesis 4 doesn't doesn't provide us with a whole lot of detail as to what happened On that fateful day. But I'll read it to you anyway. Genesis chapter 4 verses 3 through 5. So it came about in the course of time. That Cain brought an offering to the Lord. Of the fruit of the ground. Abel on his part also brought. Of the firstlings of his flock. And of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel. And for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering. He had no regard. So we can draw out of that. Not much but we can draw something. And I think we draw this. There seems to be two problems, two differences in Genesis 4 between these two men in the sight of God. It says that God, God had regard for both Abel and Abel's offering and he had no regard for either Cain or his offering. So there's a problem with the offerings and there's a problem with the men. So what was different in the men and in what they brought before God? Well, to answer that question, we've got to jump back one more chapter to Genesis chapter 3. To the very beginning of sin and misery in the human race. Genesis, Genesis 3 opens with Adam and Eve in the garden. Reaching for the forbidden fruit of self-autonomy, self-rule, self-determination. You will be like God, knowing good and evil the serpent had hissed. It says that they took And they ate. And thus forsaking the the way of faithful, glad obedience, they abandoned the fountain of joy for the bitter waters of sin. In grasping for independence from the true and the living God, they unwittingly found themselves the slaves of Satan. And so naked and ashamed, they hid from the presence of the Holy One and they shuddered At the sound of him walking in the garden. And they cowered in fear at his call when he summoned them forth. Adam, where are you? And thus the Lord summoned them from their hiding place in order to face his judgment. And he cursed the serpent. And he cursed man. And he cursed the earth. But before he expelled them from his presence. Sentencing them to a life of Toil and sorrow and sickness and misery. For such are the wages of sin. He gave them the promise. It was the promise of a redeemer who would come from the line of men. From the seed of the woman. And this redeemer would crush the head of the serpent and destroy the works of Satan. So he sent them out with a promise. And he sent them out with a sign Of his promise. He clothed them. It's a seemingly insignificant detail there in Genesis chapter 3. At the very end, verse 21, it says, He clothed them in garments of skin. Replacing the fig leaves of their own making which did nothing to cover their shame in the sight of God. He clothed them in garments of his own making that were made from the shedding of blood. It is not an insignificant sign. He clothed them in blood stained garments which he provided. And so they left the garden in sorrow, yes. In shame, yes. But also in hope loathed in the sign and the promise of a future blood-bought, curse-breaking redemption. And so Genesis 3 contains both the first gospel promise and the first blood sacrifice, both pointing to and finding their fulfillment in Christ and in his atoning death for sinners. And I want you just to imagine what kind of impact that must have had on Adam and Eve as they left the garden. How their days must have been filled with the memory not only of what had been lost through sin, but of what would be regained through this future Redeemer, this this serpent crushing seed of the woman, this blood shedding, wrath absorbing Lamb of God. They knew. And they taught their boys. Cain and Abel must have heard the story a hundred times. What else are they going to talk about? Sons, my boys, you must always remember this. There is one and only one way to approach the living God. It's through the blood of a sacrifice. Clothed only in his righteousness. Abel believed the story, and thus when it came time to present an offering before the Lord, he brought blood and nothing else. Cain did not believe the story, and so when he came, he brought the fruit of his labors. Cain brought the hard-won produce of long days of toil by the sweat of his brow. The ground's just yielding thorns and thistles and a little bit of fruit, and so he works and he works and he works and he works in order to have something to present before God. Cain brought to the Lord his works. Abel, on the other hand, brought blood. He brought the blood of the lamb. Cain approached God on the basis of his own merit, his own labors, his own effort. Abel approached God on the basis of faith through the blood of a sacrifice. Cain's offering said this to the Lord. I've worked hard to please you. Abel's offering said, I believe your promise. Cain approached a slave master who demanded sweat and toil and servitude. Abel, he approached a redeemer who gives grace and mercy freely. Cain hated Abel. Because Abel hadn't worked nearly so hard as Cain. And Cain hated God because God accepted Abel's faith and not Cain's works. And so in the course of time, Cain rose up and he murdered his brother Abel. And thus Abel became the first martyr of the Christian faith. And though he is dead, he still speaks. What does he say? What does Abel say to us this morning? He testifies to a righteousness that is by faith and not by works. When Abel approached God on the basis of faith through the blood of a sacrifice, God justified him. He obtained the testimony that he was righteous. He was justified. God declared him righteous in his sight. God imputed to him, gave to him what the garments that he gave to Adam and Eve signified. That is the righteousness of God received by faith. God clothed him in a righteousness that comes and is given from God that was won by Christ and is given to all those who believe. And the voice of Abel cries out through the ages, down through human history, crying out this morning and pleading to us. And I want you to hear what he says. He says to you, people of First Baptist Nixa, God does not want your toilsome labor. He does not want the sweat of your brow. He does not want your hard-won morality and your hard-earned religious achievements and your church attendance and your offering giving. He wants your faith, and he wants the blood of his son. So put down your basket of works and receive the righteousness of God as a free gift of his grace. That's what Abel is preaching to you and has been preaching from the dawn of time. And that's what faith does. Faith receives. It receives The righteousness of God. Faith seeks that justification which is according to grace. Faith Here's the words of Paul in Romans 4, and and its heart leaps with joy because it says this. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. God accepts me freely on the basis of the righteousness of Christ and his shed blood for my atonement. He just accepts me. And faith rejoices at that news. Faith takes its stand on the grace of God. And when it appears before God in judgment, it makes no other claim but the blood and the righteousness of Christ. My hope, my hope, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. We dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. That's the testimony of the faithful. Cain was rejected because he refused to approach the living God in the one way in which God has graciously provided, the way of faith through the blood of the Lamb. It's the only way for sinners to be justified before God. If you have no peace with God this morning, whoever you are, you have no peace with God, I tell you, on the testimony of Abel the righteous one, you will not find it through efforts. You will not find it through morality. You will not find it through trying harder to be better and to do gooder. You will find it in Christ and in him alone. And it is offered to you freely this morning as a gift of his grace. You just reach out and receive it with the arms of faith. You cry out to the God who justifies and say, justify me. You cry out to the God who is, who is handing out pardons and you say, pardon me. You call out to him this morning and he will save you. And he will justify you. And he will forgive all of your sin. And he will clothe you in garments of his own making. Garments made from the shedding of the blood of his son. The perfect spotless robes of Christ's righteousness. You go to him this morning. You don't wait for a future time. You go now. You go to him. And you cry out. And he will save. Beloved, do not settle. Do not settle for... For stale, static, past tense, dead faith that cannot taste and cannot see and cannot delight and cannot enjoy and cannot feel and cannot live and cannot endure and cannot save. Ask God to grant to you the faith that is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Ask God to grant that you may taste and see his glory as your creator and taste and see his glory as your redeemer. And we're going to come to his table in a few minutes and we're going to taste and see that he is good to his people. You receive it on the basis of faith. So you go and you ask God this morning, believing that He is and that He is the rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. So seek Him. Know Him. Enjoy Him. Taste and see, 1st Baptist Nixa, that the Lord is good. Our God and Father, I pray for Your people as the Word has been implanted this morning. I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit... You would cause it to grow and to take root. You would cause it to abound in faith and joy and tasting and seeing and delighting and living and loving and obeying faith. In the midst of your people. And to anyone here who walked in dead, I pray that you'll make them alive To anyone here who walked in unbelieving, bring them to faith. And if that is you this morning, you cry out to Jesus in prayer. Say, save me. And he will. Holy Spirit, do your work in the midst of your people this morning, I ask. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to drive home the message of this morning with a song. I want to provide a cry to your heart. As you approach the Lord's table. I want to give voice to the urging that I pray the Holy Spirit is stoking within your heart right now. And we're going to teach you a new song. I ran across it about four years ago. It comes from Genesis chapter 4 and the interaction between God and Abel. And it's very easy to sing. They're going to sing it for you in the first verse. And then we're going to join together and sing verses 1 through 4 again. Prepare your hearts to come to the table by receiving the righteousness that is by faith.
1: Let's Let's stand this morning as we sing this. Dress us in your perfect robes, both outside and within. Fallen race in Eden, fair, exposed and full of shame. Fled we naked from thy sight, far from thy Hide filthy rags of sin. Dress us in your perfect robes, both outside and within. Sent from the garden to the east, outside of Eden's gate. there, from Thy pure light, were Adam and his mate. Clothe us in Your righteousness, hide filthy rags of sin. Dress us in Your perfect robe, both.